Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode. Today, I'm so excited to be talking with Dylan Howley, and we're talking about positivity, recovery, and cycling. So we're going to talk about a little bit about his story, and I'm sure you will all be very inspired. You are listening to Creating Wellness from Within, a podcast devoted to helping you live your best life through self-care and wellness. In each episode, we strive to offer you actionable advice and tools to help you with your journey towards greater personal wellness. I am your host, Amy Zellmer. I am editor-in-chief of Minnesota Yoga and Life magazine and the Brain Health magazine. Additionally, I have published four books on the topic of brain injury and concussion. I am passionate about yoga, wellness, photography, travel, and all things glittery. You can learn more about me at creatingwellnessfromwithin.com. Today, my guest is Dylan Howley, and he has learned the benefits of switching the thoughts from negative to positive firsthand. After a motorcycle accident left his right arm paralyzed at the young age of 20, he has found happiness by challenging himself physically and mentally. As a recovering alcoholic and enthusiastic cyclist, he brought his two passions together and founded the Lefty Cycles Project, a nonprofit dedicated to providing bicycles to those in recovery and spreading positivity along the way. He enjoys sharing his stories and lessons learned from life's good and bad times. So welcome to the podcast, Dylan. So thrilled to have you. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm super I, thrilled to be here. And I have to tell you, you're the first male we have had on the podcast. I For whatever <laughs> reason, it's how the cards fell. Um, so, so thrilled to have a totally different perspective here today. Okay, great. I'm used well, to being the only guy um, <laughs> or one of the, or outnumbered, we'll say, by women my whole life. <laughs> Well, I'm really excited to have you here and sharing your story. You know, everybody has a story and some people don't like to talk about their story. And, um, you know, I think that's a disservice to society because there's so much we can learn from our struggles or challenges as well as our successes, right? There's just so much inspiration to be had. So thank you for willing for being willing to be here and share today. Um, so I guess let's just start it. You know, 20 years ago, you had a motorcycle accident. So tell us a little bit about what happened and the, the immediate recovery from that. Okay. So it was, I was 20 years old and I was on a motorcycle and essentially I was run off the road. I wasn't going that fast. I was going about 35 miles per hour. And when essentially I jumped off the bike and was doing like a front somersault, thinking I was just going to roll out in somebody's front yard, mm -hmm. and the back of my head hit a no parking sign. And, the helmet uh, and you still got the scar to prove it. <laughs> and at, at some point after that, I, I lost consciousness when I hit my head. At some point, my right arm was pulled out of the socket. It was hyperextended to such a point it pulled the nerves right out of the spinal cord. So my brachial plexus, the nerve oh. grouping that controls everything on the right side was a volse from the spinal cord right off, right from the get-go. 
And we didn't realize that till about 12 to 14 months after the accident. Wow. But when you unplug it, if you think of like a light, you're unplugging a light from the wall socket. Once you unplug those nerves from the spinal cord, you can't plug it back in. So I found a doctor in New Jersey, and this is about 14 months after the accident. So the atrophy had taken in, the depression, the drinking, yeah, living with phantom pain. Um, it was really, really, really ugly. And I found a doctor who was able to give us just this sliver of hope. And here I am thinking that my life was over. I was building houses before. I had just failed out of college for drinking too much and partying and getting in trouble and making bad decisions. And so now I've got one arm and I don't know what we're going to do. Everyone's telling me that the only real option is amputation. And I just wasn't willing to, to do that. I had been physically active my whole life playing sports, riding bikes, and just always being involved in some sort of activity. And so this really dampened everything, like my view of life, my life, yeah. others' lives. It was really an ugly time. And this doctor gave us a sliver of hope. And he said, I've got an experimental surgery that may work. We've never done this really before. You'll be the first Connecticut residents to have wow. it done. What we need to do is we need to find a donor. And we need the steel nerves out of their body. We need the steel nerves out of your body, Dylan, and make an extension cord. Because we can't plug that wire into the socket. We can splice and dice, run the nerves through your neck, and splice and dice into the brachial plexus on your left side. Wow. In theory, In this theory. may work, Dylan. But you may wake up with use of no arms. Like, sign your life away if this is what you want to do. And I was like, yeah. You know, I feel like I was put in a spot where, you know, I, I used to always joke about saying, you know, death's not the worst case scenario. You could be stuck after a bad accident wishing you died. And unfortunately, my mental state was so uh, ugly that that's where my thoughts were. And so I said, yeah, we're all for it. And when my mom found out that we needed a donor, she's boom, puts her hand up. I'll, I'll do it. So they took the nerves out of the back of my legs and my mom's legs and they rerouted them. And wow. from that surgery, the success was I got movement back in my hand. So I've got wrist movement. I've got hand movement and coordination with my fingers. There's still no feeling, no bicep, tricep, shoulders, chest, or back. But I had just enough. And then the big thing was 80% of the phantom pain was gone. So That's huge. That was life-changing. It really was. It it. It puts you back into a playing field of having an ability to, to, to survive on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. You know, chronic pain is, go ahead. Oh, that's what I was just going to say. You know, if you haven't experienced chronic pain, it is, I mean, I went through it after my brain injury, I had whiplash and torn muscles and dislocated sternum. And when you are just in constant pain, you really can't see any future or options. And I know for me, I thought a lot about suicide just because not that I wanted to die, but because I didn't want to continue in that pain. hundred mm -hmm. percent. I went down the same road. So initially I started just, that's where my drinking really spiraled out yeah. of control. 
end between the pain meds and the alcohol. I, that put me in such a depressed state and then the pain and just, there weren't many sunny days back then, but after, after about, it took us about five or six surgeries in total before I finally was like, okay, I'm done. I need to get on with my life and, and really started trying to move forward. But when I was, I was 23 when I got sober. So three years after the accident, I had crashed my car. I woke up the next morning to go to work, nine o'clock. I'm already two hours late. My car smashed up and I was blackout drunk. Had no idea what happened and wow, broke down, just broke down in tears. Like, did I kill somebody? And like, had to go through like that shameful, like trying, like calling local police departments, like just seeing if there was an accident, a hit and run, like just curious. One of my friends was in an accident and I called my best friend and my mom and told him I needed help. And I went into rehab and that was in May. That was your rock bottom. My rock bottom, a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't my first time I had attempted. I had attempted to get clean a handful of times before I had gone to rehab before and just, I could not get a grip on, on, on putting the bottle or the beer down. Like I just couldn't stop. It had such a strong grip on me. Mm-hmm. I remember after I think it was like three days of rehab. They were like, okay, you're good to go. And I was like, AKA the insurance is done paying. And it was Friday and Cinco de Mayo. And I Uh was begging and pleading, like, I'll sleep in the closet. I don't care. I'll sleep on the floor. Please just don't let me out. I got nowhere to go. Like, I don't have a place to stay. I don't have a car anymore. Like, you can't, you can't do this. And I remember thinking like, okay, like I'm done drinking. Life's going to magically get better. And that was, that was so far from the truth because now I'm sober and I've got to piece together all the destruction that I had caused and like fixing relationships and earning trust back again and just being respected as a normal person after so many years of being a raging alcoholic. And yeah. uh, I, I started doing some real soul searching at that point and I thought getting sober was impossible. And then after one day, after two days, after three days, I started believing I can do this. I can do this. And I really held on to that quote one day at a time. And it really saved my life when I needed it by only getting through one day at a time. And that spiraled into 15 years of still one day at a time. And it's crazy when the triggers hit, like it's, you just never know when a trigger to drink's going to come. Like this morning, I got up early and drove. I live in Connecticut, drove up to New Hampshire and hiked a mountain this morning. And we were at the top at like 930. We were at a diner three hours later. And for some reason, I'm thinking about having a beer. And I'm like, what is going on? Like this, you're at like a high point of your life. Everything's going what we would call good, great. And, uh, you want a beer, like you want to throw it all Mm -hmm. away. So that's like the addiction always lurking. Yeah. And I think that's the part that people don't understand about addiction, whether it's alcohol, drugs, food, whatever that addiction exercise can be an addiction. And it's not that they want, like you probably didn't necessarily want that beer. It was just like uh, almost a reflex, 
right? Like, oh, I should have a beer to celebrate. Um, even though it's been 15, 16 years. Um, it, it is, it's, I, and people see that as like being weak or, you know, whatever, whatever it is they imagine in their mind. And, um, that's not it at all. And, you know, sometimes people fall off the wagon and they get so down on them. Like, how could you do that? You didn't drink for 15 years. How could you do that to yourself? And they don't want to, it, it's so, it's so strange, isn't it? It's so hard to explain. It really is. And everybody's recovery looks so much different. Some people never relapse. Some people don't know what it's like not to relapse. And it's, as long as at the end of the day, you're trying to better yourself, there's no, there shouldn't be any judgment because we're all, yeah. I like to say, we're all imperfectly human, like yes. stop striving for perfection. We're human and by human, we'll never be perfect. Don't expect perfection from yourself or others. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, it's, it was one of those, it's definitely the whole, my whole recovery as started to plant the seed of anything is possible. And it really started moving me forward with my, my search, I guess, of who I am and my meaning and my purpose and life's purpose. And what is it all about? And I, it's a lifetime, it's a lifetime uh, investigation, but it took years of just kind of working and trying to live a normal life got engaged, got married, house, daughter, like things like that's going on. But I still felt like I was kind of missing something. And we were on like a family vacation. And at this point, I wasn't physically active. I wasn't doing anything like exercise wise, we'll say. And I was just having a really hard time with not drinking. We're in Rhode Island at a family vacation at a beach house. And all I want to do is drink. And I've got my daughter there. And like in my head, I can say like, if I drink, I potentially lose my daughter. I lose my life. I lose everything from this point on. Like, why would you want to do that? And yet still there's the urge. And the only thing that saved me that weekend was a girl's, it was either, I think it was a purple, it's either purple or bluish purple girl's bike. It was a youth size rusted, didn't really shift or stop or do anything, but it was in the garage. And I remember riding it. And it brought this sense of just freedom and the wind in my face. And it brought me to life. And it didn't matter what the people thought of me riding this little girl's bike around the neighborhood (laughs) for the next three days. But that is what really sparked my love, re-sparked my love for biking. So I've always loved bikes. And I just, I fell away from them. Didn't think I could ride with just one arm. It was always difficult. And so I was, I, I didn't even really try, but after those couple of days, that's when I started getting back into biking. And it was the, the turning point of the cycling saved my recovery when I almost, I feel like I was at the verge of a relapse and I consider relapse death because even if I'm alive, I'm dead because I'll be, I just won't be myself. And so the bike saved my life. And that's why I always say the recovery saved my life. And then my cycling saved my recovery. And that's why I'm so passionate about it. Cause I feel like I just, I owe it to them for, for keeping me alive. 
And maybe about six months after that, I had bought a nice bike, road bike. So it wasn't just like a used bike. I got a decent, it was used, but it wasn't like something that was found on the side of the road. Right. The first bike that was given to me, that was another one. It was too small. So I couldn't ride it. I'm six feet tall. It was made for people that were five, two, trying to figure out why my back hurts so much. (laughs) And one of my friend's daughter got, daughters got cancer. And we watched this whole episode of her fighting cancer, losing her hair, 20 years old, had the brightest future ahead of her. And now she's like fighting for her life. And through that, my buddy kept a smile on his face, stayed pretty optimistic. And we started saying no more bad days. And my day job is working at a scrapyard. So it's dirty, it's messy, it's dangerous. And there were always unexpected scenarios at work that are just so high stress. And every morning we'd be like, we don't know what we're going to do today, but we know it's going to be bad. And we started saying no more bad days. And it was the joke. Like there would be in a horrific situation, a car could be on fire, like no more bad days. I need two more fire extinguishers. That let's go. And it really stuck. And that was when it opened up my eyes that I could start thinking or seeing things in a different way and almost like programming my mind to having no more bad days. What if I just looked at every bad moment as just that, a bad moment. It's not a bad day. It's just a bad moment in the day. Mm -hmm. And so I really started pushing the no more bad days, just bad moments and trying to turn it into a lifestyle and just kind of like pushing the positivity and being optimistic because I think it's just as contagious as negativity. And I really Mm -hmm. started to find myself as I was doing this and always a giver. My mom used to always joke about, I could never have a restaurant because I'd give all the meals away for free. It was great advice, but what she should have said is you'll give all the meals away for free, open a soup kitchen. And I joke with her, like, you just always steered me wrong, mom. So I ended, I ended up like starting a not-for-profit called the Lefty Cycles Project, which is just that, is the recycling not the recycling, the recovery, the cycling, and the positivity. What we do is we collect bikes, fix them up, and donate them to people in recovery, all while trying to spread positivity, trying to do everything in a positive light and really just perpetuate pure goodness. And Mm. it has been such a life-changing event for me, knowing that like, okay, this is what you're meant to do. You're meant to give, you're meant to be a service to those around you and those that need it. And it's a give receive thing for me. Also, I receive so much in doing this. So when I'm helping out other people in their recovery, without them knowing they're helping me in my recovery, just the conversation, Mm -hmm. the support. So as I'm trying to help other people out on like selfishly, I know it's helping me out, but it's, it's like the best thing to do. It's a win-win. And so we're one year celebrating one year this month and we've managed to donate 103 bikes so far. Awesome. It's just been such a great, great ride. That's awesome. And, you know, I think sometimes sharing your own story or, you know, doing like 
creating a nonprofit like you did, it can be so therapeutic to your own recovery, whatever recovery means for you, right? Um, whether it's recovering from an injury or recovery, you know, from addiction, um, it can just be so therapeutic to help others. Um, and, you know, I know in my TBI world, I, I see it all the time. People, you know, are starting blogs or nonprofits or organizations um, to help other people because it, it helps them in return. Mm-hmm. And I feel like everybody's in some shape or form in recovery. Yeah. I feel like we're all recovering for yeah, I agree. something. And a lot of people ask me, you know, you're, you're recovering alcoholic. Does that mean that it's only people who are recovering alcoholics are eligible? And I was like, no, it's anybody who is recovering from something that could benefit from a bicycle because they just can't financially afford it. And it's been, I've met so many incredible people through this journey. And I've seen someone who's fighting an addiction, whether it's drugs or alcohol, their support system reach out and say, hey, Dylan, you know, my cousin's three months sober, doesn't have a car, needs to get to work. Do you have anything that would work? And they're like, yes, like that's awesome. And like, I know the cousin. Why didn't he ask me? He knows what, what I'm doing. But like a lot of people just don't like asking for stuff. So yeah. it's been really cool. It's hard to, to ask for help. It is. That is that still is my biggest, one of my biggest flaws. And you're like, okay, how challenging would it be to start a not-for-profit when you have a hard time asking for stuff? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, and for me, having my brain injury, it was a huge lesson in having to ask for help because I needed help with things. And that was, that was huge for me, learning how to ask for help. Same thing. So I remember leaving the hospital and I couldn't tie my shoes. Like it's so hard to tie your shoes with one hand. Yeah. And I was in the hospital for a week after my accident. And I remember going to brush my teeth. That was the real oh shit moment when I had my toothbrush, but couldn't put. Because you're right handed. Well, I was lefty. I'm lefty. Thank goodness. But my right hand didn't work. So I'm holding my toothbrush. Oh, how do you put the toothpaste on it? Oh, no. Yeah. (laughs) And so I was like, ooh, I'm going to be in trouble here. And I remember just like thinking like, I'm going to have to relearn how to do everything. And I I really did. And that was such a blessing in disguise because now I look at things at a completely different angle. Everything that I used to know how to do, I had to relearn how to do with just one, one hand. And it it's left me, I feel like it's left me a really good skill of problem solving and looking at things outside of the box and at a different angle. And that's been like one of the small blessings I can find from the accident. I mean, I've been able to find hundreds of them at this point, but in the beginning I was the victim. Like, how could God do this to me? What did I do wrong? And there was, it took a long time to be able to see it as a blessing in disguise. Yeah. Yeah. You kind of have to go through a grieving process. You have to grieve who you were. And in your case, you had to grieve the loss of a limb, right? Um, You really have to go through those stages of grief. Yeah. So Dylan, how do you find people 
to give the bikes to? How is it just word of mouth or how do you, how do you find the recipients? So it's been a little bit of everything. So it's been word of mouth. We've had a couple events where we've been open to the public collecting bikes as people donate them mm, and offering bikes yeah. back out. Um, I've got, I have a couple of other not-for-profits that are local that I've been able to give like almost like a bulk order for a group community home, six bikes ranging in different sizes and styles for the, the people staying in a long-term care unit. Working with a couple different um, AA programs. So I'm in recovery. My mother's in recovery. And just being in the recovery AA community, word has gotten out pretty fast. You know, at first, it was one of those things was like, if you get me the bikes, I'll find them homes. Mm -hmm. And at first, it was not an issue keeping up with the demand. And within the last month, there's been all of a sudden I'll get five people that need bikes in maybe two days, spend a week getting them fixed up, getting them out. And then all of a sudden there's some more and some more. And so it's been really awesome watching it pick up. And our goal is 120 by the new year. And I've got, so it's 17 You're more. Close. Oh, we're so close. And I've got about, Oh, I've got about another six. So I've got 11 that already basically have names on them that we're just working out sizes and helmets and they'll be good to go. So it, you're in Connecticut. We're in um, Connecticut. And so anyone listening who's, you know, in, in that New England area um, that has a bike to donate, how can they get in touch with you? So the best way would just be right through the email, which is Dylan at the leftycyclesproject.org. Um, you can contact us we're through Facebook or our, our, e, our website, but I respond pretty quick to the emails and it's basically what we ask everyone to do. Submit an email. I ask a couple of questions. I like to know when your sobriety date is. And I also like to know some of the things people I talk to in recover. I want to know what tools work for them as I try to pride myself on having the biggest toolbox with as many tools as possible. Every time I learn a new tool, it's so helpful in my own recovery. So I always like to know what works for them already. Are there any areas they think they need to work on and, and just kind of building that, that sober community. That's really mm -hmm. hard to find because alcohol is legal. It's very common. It's, yes. it's, it's just the norm. It's society's norm. And I, it's a and it's just, it's an extremely dangerous, destructive drug. Mm -hmm. um, so, Dylan, um, I assume you have a way to accept donations as well, because um, it takes money to fix up these bikes. Bikes, I'm assuming um, some of them, or at least give them their maintenance that they need. Um, so, can people make a donation through your website as well? Yes, they can go right on to our website, which is theleftycyclesproject.org. And we have a secure PayPal checkout for donations. We are registered 501c3. So it is, the donations are very much appreciated as we do need them to keep the wheels turning. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so Dylan, this year, one, go ahead. 
Oh, I'm sorry. Nope. Finish your thought. No, I was going to say, so this year we have even bigger goals and we're growing. And so any, anything would help. Awesome. Well, Dylan, it has been a pleasure having you on the podcast today. And for anyone listening, the leftycyclesproject.org, um, I will have a clickable link in the show notes so you can click through to learn more or to make a donation. Um, and, you know, just thank you for being so vulnerable and sharing your story. It's an important story. And, you know, there's often a lot of shame associated um, with being a recovering addict. And so just thank you for putting it out there and being so open. And thank you for all you do for helping the community. Um, I think this is an amazing project. So thanks so much for being here. Well, thank you, too. And thank you for everything that you do. And same thing, your community and the, the TVI world. And it's it's interesting how much of, of a difference you're able to make. Yeah. Awesome. It's Thanks, incredible. Dylan. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you have enjoyed today's episode. And again, please consider leaving a five-star review wherever you're listening to help others who are on their own wellness journey discover this podcast. Have a great day, everyone, and I'll see you in the next episode.